Hi there, I'm Ann Wynn, Senior Associate Conference Producer with Cambridge Health Tech Institute. Welcome to this podcast for the 9th International Leaders in Biobanking Congress, happening this October 25th through 27th in Nashville, Tennessee. We're very pleased to have with us Carrie R. Wiles, Program Director of the Cooperative Human Tissue Network and Vanderbilt University Medical Center Tissue Repository at Vanderbilt University, which is the institution co-hosting the conference. Carrie is also one of our speakers and short course instructors. Carrie, thanks for your time today. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is very exciting to be able to talk about biorepositories. We're looking forward to hearing what you have to say. So here's your first question. How did you come to build the Cooperative Human Tissue Network, and what processes did you seek to improve using Lean Six Sigma principles? That's a good question. I was actually recruited from Dr. Francis Collins' lab at NIH in 2002 to Vanderbilt to help build the repository. They had received the grant in 2001 and were just starting to lay the foundation for the repository, and I was brought on board to really try to build the program really quickly with very few staff members and even fewer dollars. I was lucky enough to be able to work on a couple of high-profile projects, including the Human Genome Project at the University of Iowa, which really exposed me to sort of large-scale projects with a lot of moving parts and a lot of data. And so having that under my belt sort of prepared me to understand and really sort of look at the need to organize data at different levels, understand the principles of project management and operating on a tight budget. We were expected to do things really efficiently, and that was sort of the basis for how I built the CHTN Western Division. My focus was really on building an IT solution that would allow us to do our repository work and get up and going really, really quickly. And in 2007, when the economy took sort of a turn for the worst, we were expecting cuts. We were expecting our investigators to experience those same cuts. And so we sort of knew we had to operate with much less. Began looking at what other companies, Fortune 500 companies, were doing to try to operate as leanly as possible and really got hooked into the philosophy of Lean Six Sigma, which is basically a way or a philosophy of eliminating waste. Uh, And waste can come in a variety of different forms. Waste in movement, waste in materials and consumables, waste in time, and certainly waste in money. And so we knew we had to do something to kind of keep our operations very tight and controlled in order to not have to let anyone go due to the economy. So that was really sort of my first foray into Lean Six Sigma and trying to use it in a biorepository setting. And just a quick example, sort of how this has kind of helped us sort of streamline things using this methodology and these methodologies. We had CAPA reports, which basically PDF format documents the staff would download when errors occurred. And so trying to get the staff to actually download those documents, fill them in, and then send them to me was a struggle. They just didn't have the time. And even more compounding was the fact that I would have to review all these documents and try to segment them into critical, major, minor, or severe HIPAA violations. And that process in itself, being a busy director for the repository, it took a lot of my time. And it's time that I didn't have. So one of the things that we sort of strove for was to build within our repository IT solution an error reporting module. And this was sort of used under the Lean Six Sigma framework in trying to really streamline and minimize the wasted time of our staff and myself. And so we basically built the error reporting module in our IT repository system. And when an error occurred, staff could report it directly within the IT solution by using drop-downs locate the area that they think the error occurred, how it occurred, 
what operational impact it had, if the error had been fixed or if it needed to be sort of a pending error until somebody could review it and fix it. And then sort of a brief description of how they think our operations could be changed or our SOPs could be changed so that these errors wouldn't happen again. And once they hit that submit button, it automatically distributed the error to the area that they chose they felt the error occurred in. And I also got that email. And so I could very quickly assess whether this was a major major, minor, or critical error and take care of it really quickly. And so that whole process of CAPA, the corrective action, preventative action, was cut in half to just minutes rather than 20 minutes of filling out a form and mailing it back and forth. And so that's really the basis of Lean Six Sigma and how it can be used to minimize waste. The biospecimen research enabled by well-run biobanks ultimately advances patient therapies in clinical settings, but the impact runs both ways. How do shifts in clinical care and even surgical care affect the biorepository and eventually the scientists? I can give you a couple examples. Tumors at the point of resection generally are becoming smaller due to early diagnosis and detection, Um, and therefore many of the procedures that are being performed are limiting the amount of tissue that we actually see as remnant tissue given for research to the biorepository. For instance, we used to see a fair number of open radical nephrectomies in which we received the entire kidney, part of the renal pelvis or the ureter, as well as the adrenal gland and some deep tissue adipose fat. With the advanced surgical techniques and advances in imaging and early detection, whether that be from a blood test or an acute clinician, we see these more robot-assisted partial nephrectomies. And so the result in that is that the remnant tissue availability for research has decreased greatly to getting just the tumor and surrounding normal tissue rather than the entire tissue. And so it sort of limited our ability to obtain those adrenal glands or deep tissue fat or the renal pelvis. So it's really limiting the amount of tissue that the biorepository is seeing as remnant that's not needed for patient diagnosis. Another example is we used to see five years ago radical prostatectomies or TERPs for BPH diagnosis. Now we're seeing more HOLIPS, which is holium laser enucleation of the prostate. And it's better for the patient, certainly. There's reduced risk of infection. There's greater recovery. There's less time in the hospital. It's less expensive. It's less painful for the patient. But again, with an open procedure, we're basically getting the entire tissue as a solid form. But with the whole procedures, they're basically enucleating with the laser the inside of the prostate. And what we see now is just a slurry with very small chips of prostate tissue. And so for people that are doing morphological studies, it's really difficult now to get BPH solid tissue from at least our biorepository due to these surgical advances. And again, they're certainly much better for the patient, but they're also compromising our ability to further research, sort of a heavy scale depending on where you sit. We certainly want to make everything very comfortable for the patient, and we want to ensure that patient diagnosis is successful, and we want to reduce the amount of time the patient's in the hospital and certainly reduce the amount of pain, but it has taken its toll on the biorepository. Well, just as biobanks need to keep many biological samples viable long-term through their storage functions, they also need to keep themselves viable long-term as a resource for scientists. What does it take to sustain a biobank, and how might that change? Sustainable 
disability is really one of those touchy subjects. It really does mean different things to different people. For example, I can have someone tell me that they are 100% sustainable in all their biorepository functions are supported through the recharge of their services. But when you start asking questions such as, you know, well, what do you pay in rent? Or what's your electricity bill? Or how much do you pay in service contracts per year? Or what is your equipment turnover? And who pays to replace that equipment? The answer is typically institutional support. And the institution provides us with space and electricity, and it purchases the startup equipment for us. So when you delve a little deeper into their idea of sustainability, it doesn't match sort of your idea of sustainability. Um, and for a lot of academic biorepositories, it's very difficult to maintain and become sustainable, especially when you have indirect costs that are taking up 60% of your grant or your award and leaving you with 40% to operate. And so you're sort of forced to work a little bit harder to build that recharge so that you can support and sustain your biorepository. But again, it's one of those very touchy subjects and most people have different views of sustainability and what that is. But when you're dealing with an academic biorepository where you may be taxed on any recharge income that you have for your service that you provided on top of your indirect charge makes it really, really difficult to become fully sustainable. And so I always like to question people on what they actually mean by sustainability. Also, it's part of the biorepository's responsibility to recognize trends so that you can sort of stay ahead of the curve in sustainability. And part of those trends have to do with what investigators are requesting and where the research is going. So we've seen a dramatic shift from what we used to see investigators requesting in frozen tissue or formal and fixed paraffin embedded tissue to now that shift being more fr fresh tissue. So procured the same day as the surgery and shipped to them overnight in media. But they also want matching blood. And I suspect that is because the tumors are becoming smaller and smaller and more pharmaceutical companies and researchers are developing technologies that will detect circulating tumor cells or cell-free DNA and blood for diagnostic purposes or biomarker detection. So you sort of have to understand sustainability, the business model, the trends that you're seeing, and be able to adjust and be agile enough to sort of move along that trend line and stay ahead of that curve so you can maintain some degree of sustainability. But this also sort of delves into what we're seeing now with the new graduates that we're, we're seeing and we hire and I've spoken to a number of different biorepositories, and we sort of all kind of have the same outlook with these new millennial graduates in that their expectation of an entry-level job is around sixty dollars to $70,000 starting. And there's no way that as an entry-level job in an academic biorepository, you can sustain the repository with staff requirements salary requirements like that. And so what we see typically are, you know, they come in and they work for 12 months or 18 months and sometimes even six months. And then they realize that they're not going to be promoted in the time frame that they think they should, or um, they're not going to be making the money that they thought they should be making when they come out of college with their nice shiny degree. And so they quit. And so that costs the biorepository money because we spent all that time training. We spent all that money in 
implementing them and integrating them into the academic biorepository. And so that really has an effect on sustainability as well. And this is one of the topics that we're going to talk about in the short course that we're hosting in October for the Cambridge Health Institute Ninth International Leaders in Biobanking Conference held here in Nashville. One of my co-presenters will be handling that topic at the University of Indiana and what she is doing to try to build her biorepository in terms of using staff and motivating them, creating titles for them, allowing them to be more or trained in a variety of different areas so they can multitask and they can sort of be promoted in a fashion that they're sort of more comfortable with. So all of those things together really impact the way that the biorepository operates and its ability to be sustainable. Well, thank you, Carrie, for sharing your nuts and bolts and big picture insights about this field. And we're really looking forward to hearing a lot more from you during the conference in October. Great. Thanks for having me. That was Carrie Wiles of Vanderbilt University. She'll be representing Vanderbilt as a conference co-host. We'll be co-presenting with colleagues from the Medical Center on the Academic Biorepository's responsibility and co-instructing the short course Lean Six Sigma and the Biorepository, Synchronicity in the Simplest Form. All this is happening during the Leaders in Biobanking Congress, taking place October 25th through 27th in Nashville. To learn more from her, visit www.biobankingcongress.com for registration info and enter the key code podcast. This is Anne Wynn. Thanks for listening.